This is the Christian Home and Family Podcast with Carrie Green, October 29th, 2012, episode number nine, Christian Families in a Sexualized World, a conversation with pastor and counselor Brad Hambrick. You can support Christian Home and Family by using the links on my dad's resource page when you make online purchases. Check it out at www.christianhomeandfamily.com slash resources. Welcome to the Christian Home and Family Podcast with Carrie Green. He's my dad. The Christian Home and Family Podcast brings you biblical teaching, encouragement, Q&A, interviews, biblical conversations, and much, much more. All focused on helping you make Christ the center of your home so that you can build a legacy of faith in your family for generations to come. You can find out more about the ministry of Christian Home and Family at www.christianhomeandfamily.com. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the Christian Home and Family Podcast. My name is Kerry Green. I am the founder and host of the Christian Home and Family Podcast, and you can find more information about Christian Home and Family at www.christianhomeandfamily.com, and you can contact me there through that same address and just add a forward slash contact at the end. My mission with Christian Home and Family is to help you make Christ the center of your home, but it doesn't stop there. I'm doing that so that you can produce or build a legacy of radical Christian faith in your family for generations to come. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question about the Christian Home and Family podcast, you can do that. The the easiest way is just to call this number. Call my dad with your questions or comments. 719-966-7747. And I just wanted to let you parents know that this particular episode, because of its topic and the nature of the things that must be discussed, could be considered a PG-13 rating. So it would be good if you uh, use your own discernment and decide if uh, the little ears around you should be moved to another room or gotten occupied somewhere else, or maybe even use your headphones. But before we get into our episode, uh, an interview with Pastor Brad Hambrick, I have a couple of things that I wanted to do. First of all, I have some announcements. The show notes for this episode, you can find at christianhomeandfamily.com forward slash 009 for episode nine. And if there's any links or things that we mentioned in the show uh, that you would like to look up, you can find them there. And finally, I wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you in part by Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is an internet accountability sort of software that you can install on your computer and it will track your journey across the internet, so to speak, and send an accountability report to a specified email partner who would be your accountability partner. As well as that, Covenant Eyes also has internet filtering software that you can purchase in addition to the accountability software and i cannot recommend this enough in our in my interview with pastor brad you will hear him discuss uh, some of the tools that are out there to help families with the dangers of the internet and the sexual temptations that are there but covenant eyes is one of those ways that i endorse and have used and believe in so you can find uh, information about Covenant Eyes at www.christianhomeandfamily.com forward slash CE for Covenant Eyes. 
and that will take you through my affiliate link to the Covenant Eyes website where you can find out more about them. And if you go that route as well, you will get one month free service from Covenant Eyes. So I encourage you to do that. Well, it's time to move on into the episode uh, interview with Pastor Brad Hambrick. He is pastor of counseling at Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Well, Brad, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. Well, I like to begin each episode by just inviting my guests to give their own personal introduction of themselves uh, through a couple of starter questions. So, um, Brad, could you tell us a little bit how you came to faith in Christ? Sure. Uh, I grew up in a small town in western Kentucky. Uh, When I say small town, it was uh, roughly 30 minutes to the nearest McDonald's. And um, at the local church in our town uh, was brought up there, and so I was brought up uh, hearing the scriptures taught, and it was probably when I was about nine and a half years old that uh, it was a church where we had revival meetings, and um, there was something about the message that it wasn't just uh, a generic good story, uh, but it felt intensely personal that uh, I saw my need for Christ and that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. Uh, in a way that, well, I probably understood because I had heard it before, uh, but it was a very uh, real thing. And I remember uh, going forward as we would in our church there and talked with the pastor uh, at the service and some afterwards, uh, prayed to receive Christ. Yeah, I came to faith in Christ early on as well. I believe I was five is what my mother says. And I I remember the day, I just don't remember the age, but um, anyway, that is great. I love hearing stories of God uh, graciously calling people at a very young age. That that is just a special work of grace. Um, Tell me a little bit about your family. Uh, We currently live in the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area, Um, but as I said, I grew up in Kentucky. I met my wife while I was uh, doing my studies at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, She was also in school there. And uh, in our final year of school, uh, we dated and uh, married and then moved to Wake Forest, North Carolina, uh, where I did uh, a Master's of Divinity in counseling. After that, we spent eight years down in Augusta, Georgia, serving in a parachurch counseling center. Uh, Towards the end of that time, we served probably 150 or so churches as a referral source and teaching instrument. Uh, probably another 50 to 75 medical doctors who would refer to us um, because of the kind of uh, Christian counseling that we provided. And then about a year and a half ago, I uh, was called here to the Summit Church and also to do uh, adjunct teaching in the area of biblical counseling with Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, and have really enjoyed uh, figuring out all the ways that those things can come together to serve God and serve His church. How is it that the Lord moved you into the area of of counseling uh, within the church? I began as a general call to ministry. Uh, When I was in late high school, uh, early college, I wrestled with whether or not uh, vocational ministry would be uh, the area that I would go. Uh, At that point, being in my very early 20s, uh, maybe even late teens for part of that, youth ministry was the only area that they would allow me to do. And so... um, 
I would volunteer in those areas and loved it. Uh, being somewhat young and naive and enjoying it, I thought I would do youth ministry for the rest of my life because it was um, it was very natural and a good fit. Uh, so in my undergrad, uh, I studied youth ministry. And when I went to seminary, I didn't want to do another degree in youth ministry because uh, I felt like I'd read most of those books and I didn't want to read them twice. Um, <laughs> so I went into the area of counseling uh, because I thought it would be a good supplement to youth ministry. Um, but really found that counseling was an area that fit with me very well. It was an area that I was uh, passionate about. It seemed to be a lot of area for development in terms of understanding how counseling could come alongside the local church and work within the local church to care for people uh, and to reach those who are outside the church. And um, so over the course of my studies, um, it was uh, just based on my uh, gifting and passions uh, felt like that was the uh, best area for me to go. Well, I sure appreciate you opening up your life to us, telling us that little bit of your story. And if you don't mind, let's take a moment here just to pray together before we launch into our main topic. I would love that. Father, I thank you for Pastor Brad and the faithfulness that you have shown in his life. I thank you for this amazing, mysterious way that you call us to serve you, whether we are plumbers or pastors. You give us uh, the privilege of being involved in your work. And I thank you for his focus that you've given to him in the area of counseling. So many of us uh, have those hangups and hurts inside that we don't understand. And by your grace, you give us people like Pastor Brad to help us understand those things and work through them uh, in a way that uh, redeems them for the sake of your purposes. And so, Lord, I ask that today as we talk about this specific issue of Christian families in a sexualized world, you would give us wisdom and guidance and discretion and all the things that are needed to speak about this in a way that's helpful to those who you know are listening at this particular time. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Brad, I have already in the introduction uh, warned the uh, audience that this is a PG-13 rated podcast. Uh, I hope that we can just be as honest as we need to be about some of these subjects and I've invited you to discuss this subject with me because of a seminar that you did at your church that I happened upon in video form on your website. So uh, to start off, give us your best shameless plug. Tell us about that seminar, where we can find it, any other seminars you've done, all that kind of thing. It, uh, I believe the seminar that you're referencing is the one that we did on false love, uh, That's right. overcoming sexual sin from uh, pornography through adultery. And uh, that's a part of an ongoing series of seminars that we offer here through the church. And uh, we'll kind of walk in just a touch with the background of how we design those seminar ministries. Uh, one of our convictions here within the counseling ministry is that um, we don't want to do events, we want to create resources. Uh, and so whenever we do an event, that's somewhat of a misnomer, yes, we do do events, but uh, when we do them, we want the people to leave not feeling like they are dependent upon the person who spoke in order to do ministry. We want them to leave feeling like they have a tool. Uh, and so as we develop our resources, we do that with uh, a fairly thorough mentoring manual. Uh, my staff likes to give me a hard time about how thorough those tend to be. Um, uh, we also video them. Uh, we've created a nine-step methodology uh, that undergirds much of what we do. Uh, and the reason we did that for two different areas or in two different ways 
uh, is because we would believe the gospel would speak to issues of sin differently than they speak to issues of suffering. So when we did the false love seminar dealing with the area of sexual sin, uh, we used our uh, nine-step methodology for struggles based in sin. Uh, but one of the things that with this seminar that, that I hope would be unique and meets a particular need is that we also developed a complementing seminar uh, that was called True Betrayal, uh, Overcoming the Betrayal of Your Spouse's Sexual Sin. Um, because not only within the church, uh, but also within the secular uh, counseling world at large, uh, the area of the person who has been betrayed is one that is it's just radically underserved and under-resourced. There's just not nearly as many uh, books and materials to help the person who has been betrayed. Uh, and so in that seminar, we don't use our sin-based methodology as if uh, the person who has been betrayed has done something wrong that they need to repent for. Uh, but the gospel does bring comfort to them. And so we walk them through the nine steps of how uh, we believe it captures how the gospel speaks to subjects of suffering. And so that there is something there that complements that if the individual who is struggling with sexual sin is married, um, that there's something to care for he or she and their spouse uh, in a way that can synchronize them together. That is that is excellent. I love the comprehensive approach of both sides of that issue because you're right. There are victims of that kind of sin who don't need the same kind of treatment um, where could people find those resources? I know you've placed those up for free, so let people know where they can find those. Absolutely. Uh, everything that we do here goes through my uh, website, my blog, which is simply Brad Hambrick. Uh, that's B-R-A-D-H-A-M-B-R-I-C-K uh, dot com. And uh, you'll notice up at the top of the screen, it has a spot for videos, uh, audio presentations, articles, uh, many different things, and everything on the website is free because uh, we want it to be something that equips the church for the work of ministry. I so appreciate that. Um, and by the way, anyone who's listening, you can find that link. You don't need to write it down. You can find it in the show notes for this episode at com slash nine. Brad, give me some real-life examples uh, of how you've seen the sexual nature of the culture we live in impacting Christians in, I guess there's three different categories I think of, men, then women, and then children. So let's start with the men. How does the sexual nature of our culture impact men who are believers? One of the things that there's for men is our sexualized culture just tends to make us relationally lazy. You know, one of the things that is there with the sexualized culture and pornography is um, it almost gets served to us in a fast food fashion. Uh, you drive up at the moment that you're hungry. You don't have to do any cooking. They pass it out the window cheap, and you move on with something that doesn't have many health benefits and just kind of leaves you feeling fat and bloated afterwards. It, and that sense of, I don't feel the need to work for and be committed to and cultivate relationships, it allows to, men to get what they tend to want most from the relationship, which is the stimulation and the pleasure uh, on the physical and visual side without uh, doing the work behind it. The uh, One of the things that has struck me as I've reflected on this a bit uh, is just how much an entertainment culture impacts the way that we think as men and women. 
Um, and here I'm not necessarily trying to be upset with the entertainment culture or saying that they're doing something wrong or there's some kind of uh, grand scheme behind it all to destroy marriage. But if you think about the multi-billion dollar entertainment industry, uh, and really their goal based on their name is to entertain us, to take the things that we like, to present them to us in such a way that we can lose ourselves in that. Well, if there are the best authors that our world has, and they have multi-million dollar budgets uh, to present visual and soundtrack and everything that would go with what we naturally enjoy as men and women, how could we not think that the natural, exi- the natural differences that exist between men and women uh, would be exaggerated when we have that level of multi-sensory entertainment bombarded upon us uh, to where that for men, uh, they can be visually stimulated with the most attractive actresses and the best stories where all they have to do is sit back and watch. Uh, And for women, uh, these very intense romantic narratives where Uh, The men are very pursuing because you have the best authors putting the best storylines together. And it's taking some of those aspects that make us distinct as men and women, pouring billions of dollars into it to entertain us and thereby exaggerate those parts of who we are. And so the adult end, uh, I would say it's largely just this pervasive discontentment uh, that for men may come across as being lazy Uh, And oftentimes for women can come across as being uh, critical or discontent um, because the men in the world don't measure up to uh, the ideals that are being presented in uh, the media portrayals. Tell me how how this sexual nature of our culture impacts children. The things that you experience early or when you experience something for the first time, uh, it has an intensified impact upon you. Uh, And so just a a generic kind of playful example of that. Uh, One of the traditions in our home and family is on Saturday morning, we have cinnamon rolls. Uh, And so I don't think my youngest son knows what Saturday is. He just knows it's cinnamon roll day. One of the things my kids say to my wife all the time is, Mama, you make the best cinnamon rolls ever. They're Pillsbury out-of-the-can cinnamon rolls. Uh, But it's what they knew first as a cinnamon roll. And the way that that impacts them and that becomes the standard for what a good cinnamon roll is, that will have an exaggerated impact on their experience of cinnamon roll probably for much of their life. And so when we have children in a sexualized culture and their first exposure to sexuality is locker room conversations, is pornography on the Internet, is other forms of Uh, very self-centered, selfish, uh, catering to you without you having to give, uh, exploring without having to make yourself known, so there's no risk of vulnerability, but I'm just getting pleasure from that. Uh, The intensity of those first experiences uh, and the way that that impacts them, uh, I think, is uh, really the biggest part when it comes to impacting children. So what I'm hearing you say is that it it's is formative. If if children at a younger age are are exposed to things of a sexual nature that are not presented 
biblically or in a healthy manner, it forms the way they perceive those things, which can impact the, the remainder of their life. Your first exposure to anything is the standard by which you measure the next occurrence of that. Yes, well, I, in my own story, I know I, I did not learn of sexual things at home. I learned it on the playground at school, and I don't recall a conversation with my parents about those things. I think they were kind of raised in that generation where those those things were very difficult to talk about. And uh, as a result, I learned it elsewhere, and I can, well, I can attest to that personally that the the ideas I got about sexuality at that early stage were neither right nor healthy. Yeah, I know we'll get to the parenting aspect here in just a bit, but we'll make a point caveating off what you're saying there. Uh, as parents, uh, we not only do we need to talk about these matters, uh, we need to be able to talk comfortably about these matters. Yeah, uh, these are awkward conversations. There's no way around that, but. If the kids on the playground are more comfortable having the conversation than the parents at home, we tend to trust the person who is most comfortable with their subject matter. Uh, And the calmness of our boys, the relaxedness with which we take questions, the comfortableness of eye contact and uh, that this is a conversation that we invite the kids to re-enter, that it's not the talk in the singular Uh, Our comfort level in how we have the conversation will be a big part in how much credibility we have in the eyes of our children on the subject. What is it about sexual temptation and sexual sin that threatens the development of a Christ-centered family and home? If I could pick one that I think is regardless of gender uh, and is at the root of most of the other impacts that come in, It's just the self-centered nature of the fantasy. In sexual sin, I'm always the main character. Everything centers upon and caters to me. I escape into this world. Everything caters to me in that world. So that when I step out of that world and back into a real family uh, that wants things from me, rightfully so, where things go wrong, Uh, where stress can't be immediately escaped from, where difficult conversations need to be had. It just feels like too much. And all of a sudden, the fake world, the fantasy world, the world that centers on me, the world where I get to play the God-type role and I speak and things happen, I think and it caters to me, Uh, I click and I get what I want, I begin to become increasingly comfortable in that self-centered fantasy world and increasingly less comfortable in the real world with real people that I probably do really care about, um, but what it means to love and care for them in the midst of real relationships just increasingly feels like too much. Let me preface this next question with uh, a statement. Um, The last thing I believe we as Christians should be is alarmists. Because we serve the sovereign Lord of the universe, we have no reason for fear, yet the scriptures repeatedly exhort us to be wise in how we live. So given that as a foundation, if you could put uh, a flashing warning sign, neon lights, over a particular sexual hazard that's in our culture presently, what would those hazards be? The biggest thing that I would emphasize there would be isolation. 
uh, we live, you know, if we ask what is it that has made sexual sin uh, reach its epidemic proportions, largely it was the Internet uh, in that it allowed pornography and other forms of sexual sin and contact and fishing for sexual partners to be done in a way that had no social risk or at least not immediate social risk. I could do it in anonymity from the privacy of my own home. And one of the things that, uh, that has almost become an American proverb uh, when we talk about the areas of sin in our life uh, is that's none of their business, talking about our small group or our church, our pastors or anybody else. And it's almost as if we can say that statement in our day and age, that's none of their business. And everybody kind of nods their heads and um, gives that affirming little grunt like we said something really wise and profound like, mm, mm, you're so right, yes. I would say that phrase is the punchline of hell. In the comedy club of hell, in the same way that if you go to the comedy club and Jeff Foxworthy is there and his catchphrase is, you might be a redneck if, or in the old days, Rodney Dangerfield, I can't get any respect. If you go to the comedy club of hell, and ask what is it that has the demons rolling in the floor laughing. It's when they show video clips of people saying that's none of their business, and then all of a sudden they're going to deal with their sin all by themselves. They're going to cut themselves off from all the benefits of the body of Christ and accountability and awareness. And yeah, the lion who's roaring out there seeking to whom he may devour, you think you're going to take him one-on-one because you've got this private agreement with God. You've got this under control. This is none of their business. And they're rolling in the floor laughing going, they really believe it. And they'll say it out loud to one another as if it's wise and common sense, and all of them are nodding. I think it is, again, as funny as it could be in the comedy clubs of hell. And, and then if I could just give another piece of you know, what we look for in terms of hazard. Um, it's, uh, I believe I got this from uh, Joshua Harris. Uh, but he describes lust as entertaining ourselves with the things that Christ died to free us from. Hmm. Uh, and they are not just meaning sexual lust, but lust in its broadest connotation. What things that Christ would die to free me from am I beginning to find humorous, amusing, entertaining, interesting? Because as soon as I begin to place those kinds of labels on it, then something that is dangerous I'm beginning to view as innocent. At one level, we might call that naivety. Uh, But I think what Scripture calls that is the searing of our conscience. Uh, I think culturally, the way in which we have used humor and entertainment uh, to desensitize ourselves to things, uh, we need to let the shock value of that statement. Lust is entertaining entertaining ourselves with the things that Christ died to free us from. We need to let the shock value of that rattle us a bit more. I totally agree. That is so penetrating. it seems too often as believers, we don't give serious thought to those kinds of, of matters. And it is right here at the, at the core of this issue because uh, the church is to be a place of community where we are uh, encouraging one another daily so that we don't become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And when we become so isolated like that, it, it puts us in a very vulnerable place, doesn't it? Absolutely. 
Well, let, let's turn a corner here and let's talk about the practical side of things in the home. Uh, how do you counsel Christian parents to speak about the issue of sexuality and sexual temptation with their children? I know we said a little bit about that, but unpack that a little more for us. I'll start with what I would call the pre-talk uh, or pre-talking to get it out of the singular and make it more of a uh, ongoing continuous tense verb. I think as a broad parenting principle that the best thing that you can do for your kids is to love your spouse well. Amen. And I think that is important for talks about sexuality uh, as much as it's important for any other area. If my boys see me love my wife well, and they see her respond to me in ways that are warm and appreciative and affectionate, uh, and there is a playful, loving atmosphere in our home, they might actually want what I'm selling when I talk about sexuality. There is a level of credibility that comes with that, an air of safety and protection. Uh, that the most important thing that I can do to set this conversation up with my children uh, is to love my life well. Uh, I think the second most important thing that I can do uh, is to build a great relationship with my kids. Uh, I need to spend a lot of time with them so that when we sit down to have a significant conversation, it doesn't feel like something that is completely new and arbitrary, rut row, what's going on, why are we doing this? Uh, there needs to be a sense that conversations that matter are things that we do frequently and that we've had plenty of those that weren't about something that was sinful or something that was awkward like sex is going to be uh, so that a platform for that conversation has been laid. Um, you know, for me, that's uh, camping with my kids or taking my boys on special trips, just me and them, uh, having times when we just... Uh, we like to go get chili cheese dogs together because that's what my oldest son likes, and it's kind of one of our adventure trips. And um, just having important conversations around those things. And then a third part of the pre-talk that I would put out there, uh, just being open and honest about my own spiritual struggles and maturation. Uh, when I don't handle something well, my kids need to hear me own up to that. Uh, they need to hear what repentance sounds like. Uh, clean repentance, not repentance that is uh, marred by this grimy sense of shame and awkwardness, um, but where I can come and humbly and confidently repent, uh, acknowledge what I did, own the things that became too important to me that led me to um, be harsh with them or neglect something or uh, forget a promise that I made. They need to hear that language. Because if I'm going to talk to them about an area that, if I'm just honest, my the kids are going to struggle because they are sexual kids. They are made with gender. This is something that I am opening up a conversation. I'm not ending the conversation. And I need to have modeled for them what repentance and honest self-awareness sounds like so that they have a category for what they need to do with the subject that I'm about to talk with them about. And so there's kind of that, that long road of pre-talking that needs to happen. Um, beforehand, there's two resources that I would recommend. Uh, I really like Paul Tripp's little booklet, uh, How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex. It's only about 30 pages. Uh, it's not the, um, the how-to book on sex as far as the birds and the bees and that kind of talk. But in terms of framing the discussion of sex within a Christian worldview and what God made it for, 
I think he sets parents up very well in that resource. And then uh, Joshua Harris's book uh, was originally called Not Even a Hint. Um, uh, the re-release of that was Sex is Not the Problem, Lust is. Um, but it is a very good PG book on lust uh, written for young people. And many of the books on uh, lust, if you give them to kids, uh, it's almost like sending them to an AA meeting the first time they struggle with alcohol. Um, and they learn more from what they're reading than they should, and it almost becomes part of the problem. Uh, and that's why I really like Joshua Harris's book. It is open and honest, but it's not so descriptive that it becomes part of the temptation. And so then when you get into how to begin to have that conversation, uh, when the kids are little, start by asking how gender is discussed at school. And again, they're not going to, if you just say, how is gender being discussed at your school? Chances are a, uh, a fourth grader is not going to respond to that. But listen for when they talk about uh, if you have boys, the girls in your class, or if you have girls, the boys in your class. And uh, when you get a moment of that, follow up with some questions. Um, you know, what do boys and girls call each other? Are they, uh, are they going out? Are they hanging out? Are they boyfriend or girlfriend? Just allow them to begin to be comfortable talking about those kinds of things with you. Some parents shy away from that because they're going to feel like they are encouraging their children to start dating or something like that at a very early age. Um, you just need to be in the loop on uh, the verbiage and be a part of the conversation of what's going on with things related to gender and sexuality. Another thing that I would say in those early stages, emphasize the concept of honor. Uh, not just in terms of things related to sexuality, but just what is it that is the defining mark of a good relationship? Uh, one of the questions that we ask, and we try not to do it in a way where it always comes across as they've done something wrong. We try to ask it when they've done right as well. Did what you just did honor your brother? Did it honor your mother? Uh, did it honor your teacher? Uh, so that they begin to have a sense of what it means to treat another person as a person instead of treating them as an object that allows you to get what you want. Again, that can be as simple as taking one toy from, them, from another kid. Did that honor them? No, because you didn't treat them as a person. You treated them as just someone who had what you wanted and you took it from them. And again, I wouldn't use this with a four-year-old, but as speaking to the adults here or having the conversation, you dehumanized them. That is what it means to dishonor. And if we begin to build that foundation at a very early age, then when we talk about honoring members of the opposite sex and not using them for the visual pleasure that they can give us or the physical pleasure that we can get, they can give us, but to treat them as a person who is made to be honored and loved, all of a sudden that conversation that if they don't have the foundation, it's going to start to sound very kind of esoteric and up in the clouds. They're going to have enough of a category where they get that and that registers with their conscience. And then from uh, when you begin to get into the years where you have kids that, um, you know, in the late elementary, even middle school is where I would begin to put that now, kids are going to start bringing pornography to school where they're going to begin to uh, experience uh, personal arousal and uh, they're going to become more uh, gender aware. Um, those are conversations that just need to be had many times. 
Uh, I think it's good if you can build those initial conversations uh, around an event, uh, like the Passport to Purity materials or some other kind of let's get away and have a chance to to have this conversation where you're not worried about who's going to walk in or there's going to be a special memory and attachment that's attached to that. For anyone who's listening who has uh, school-age children, I mean, they've begun school or they're, they're, they've been in school for a while, I would encourage you to take this this particular last 10 or 15 minutes and rewind and listen to that again. There is so much good practical stuff in there. I Brad, I especially appreciated uh, you referred to it and you didn't quite say it this way, but I think there's a there's another one of those punchlines in the Comedy Club of Hell that we hear all the time and that is quality time versus quantity time. And I hear you saying they're the same thing. Qu- quality is quantity time. Absolutely. You're not going to have one without the other. And uh, it, uh, if in those moments when you're trying to have quality time, uh, your kids are so excited and amped up because there isn't enough quantity of time that they can be relaxed in that special moment, uh, your message gets lost in the newness of what's going on. And so it is the quantity of time that protects the quality of time mm. and allows the messages to really be delivered in those moments. Yeah, and so you're protecting it from being one of those quote-unquote mountaintop experiences that only happens at a special time, and instead you're building those kinds of, of deep learning and connecting times into every day of life. Right, and you allow, because again, I think that uh, oftentimes the mountaintop experience can, that almost becomes a little bit of a pejorative phrase sometimes when people use it. I think it's just one that we have to protect, and it doesn't become something that is so different from the rest of life. Uh, it's nice to have those moments as long as there's places in the rest of our life for that to echo and occur. Again, I think that's the role of the the quantity of time that there's just no substitute for. Yeah, now you mentioned three uh, resources there. I will put links for those in the show notes for parents who are interested in in checking those out. And uh, that will be at christianhomeandfamily.com forward slash nine. What is your opinion about the variety of safety measures people have created? Anything from computer filtering or accountability software to DVD players that skip scenes uh, that you tell it to skip. What do you think about those kinds of resources? And I'll talk both sides out of my mouth here for a moment. I think they're great. Uh, I think it would be uh, the foolish and naive parent that doesn't use them. Uh, anything can, that can, we, I st- can I stop you there for a minute? Foolish yeah. and naive. Tell me, tell me more of why you would say that. If there is a way that I can put uh, a speed bump between my kids and sin... Uh, particularly ones that have such a addictive nature to it, uh, I want to do that. Uh, and so if I choose not to, uh, then I am being foolish. Uh, and if it just doesn't occur to me or I think, no, my kids won't need that, uh, then I'm being naive. Okay. Okay. Now let, let me and, push back on that a little bit. How How is that different from a parent who's just trying to shelter their child from every outside influence that may have the potential to corrupt them. I I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but I want want you to unpack that for us a little more. In our day and age, I don't see how a child is going to grow up without access to technology. I would say it is much more effective and practical 
in the long term, not just the 18 years that your child may be in your home where you have much more direct access to everything that's going on in their life, uh, but for where you begin to teach them what it is to use these things in a responsible manner. Part of discipleship and maturation of a child in these days is teaching them responsible ways to engage with and the appropriate protections to put around technology. Okay. Okay, good. Now, I apologize. I interrupted you there. You were about to speak out of both sides of your mouth, so continue. You know, on the one hand, I would say they are wonderful. They should be used, uh, absolutely. But then on the other hand, I think there are two dynamics that we have to be aware of, that we, uh, we should use them, but we can't trust them. Uh, as your kids get older, just chances are they're going to be better with technology than you are. Uh, and I think teenagers have always thought that they were smarter than their parents, uh, but to have this kind of technological validation only exacerbates that tendency. I think, one, recognizing that unless you're a computer programmer or a parent who's just very technologically aware, uh, you may be at the informational disadvantage with those kinds of resources. They may be more skilled at getting around them uh, than you are using them. Uh, I think there's also a time when we use these kinds of things as parents and we begin to feel like that is what's doing the job that only relationship can do, still the most effective tool that you have in protecting your children is not going to be anything technological. Uh, it is going to be the quality of relationship that you have with them uh, because that is what's going to allow you to carry the heavy freight uh, of Scripture and the gospel and hope and honesty and vulnerability into the life of your children. So should we use it as a protective measure? I would say absolutely. Uh, should we trust it or begin to rely upon it as if that is going to begin to do the job that needs to be done in the area of discipling our children in the area of sexuality? Uh, not at all. Uh, Pastor Brad, if, if there's someone listening here, whether it's a man or a woman or a teenager even, who is battling an area of sexual temptation or sin in their own life, what would you counsel them to do about that? Again, I think a, a vital question. Uh, this podcast would be incomplete without it. Uh, the, the first and most important thing, pick up the phone and make a phone call. Call your best friend. Call your pastor. Call your small group leader. Call your Sunday school teacher. Uh, that until you move this struggle out of your private world, secrecy is the home turf of sexual sin. Mm. And... Uh, until you've been honest, you're not being serious. And you need to be honest with another person who cares about you. And so anything else that we might say, until you take that step of being honest with another person, uh, without trying to come across as condescending, you're just playing games. Hmm. And you're going to hear this podcast and you're going to say, ah, that was so convicting. There were so many things that was true. I think I understand things better. I, I think I got this. I never thought of it that way. You know, whatever point may have been said that resonated with you. And you're very quickly going to begin to tell yourself that that level of insight was enough. One of the things we say here at the Summit Church uh, as a plumb line of our church is that discipleship happens in relationship. Uh, change happens in relationship. And until I've been honest with another person, uh, I am not engaged with the process of change in a way that I should suspect uh, long-term ongoing change. 
Um, and once you have been honest uh, with another person, uh, then at that point, I would say pick a good resource in the area, uh, in the subject area of sexual sin. Uh, hopefully the false love materials that we're talking about that prompted this conversation, uh, that can be something that takes you through a step-by-step, uh, has evaluations and the questions that you need to answer and what you would share and begin to uh, direct you through that relationship. There are many other materials out there. There may be a ministry in your church that you can plug into that is already a much more relational capacity, be it a, a men's group or a women's group or something like that. And if I had to choose between something that already exists in your church where there is a context of relationship and using the materials that I've written, use the more relational connected arena because that is, that's going to be vital. If you don't have that, then we designed our materials to help you facilitate those relationships with whoever that person is that you need to push pause on this podcast and call right now. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, uh, Brad, I just have to say, just on a personal level, I appreciate your willingness and your courage to uh, talk about the reality of, of how we are as human beings. Uh, something the Lord has put kind of in my DNA since I started in ministry 20-some years ago is that life is, is too precious and too serious and too short to avoid talking about the reality of what we're struggling with. And, and I just appreciate that, that willingness that you have there. Well, Brad, I, uh, one of the things I love about podcasting is the continual nature of the resource. It's always available. People can always find it and download it even years in advance. And my prayer is that uh, the expertise and the, uh, the wonderful gifts that God has given you and you've been faithful using in ministry uh, will help people for years and years to come through this podcast. So I want to thank you for your dedication to the Lord and your, your willingness to discuss uh, such uncomfortable matters. Brad, thank you. My, my greatest prayers and blessings go to you and your family and, and for your service. I just thank you. Oh, thank you so much for letting me come on and do this. I want to thank Pastor Brad Hamburg once again for his time in helping us to understand these issues here on the Christian Home and Family Podcast. As we wrap things up, just want to remind you the show notes can be found at christianhomeandfamily.com forward slash nine. There you can find all the links that were mentioned by Pastor Brad or by myself. And I also want to remind you if you need filtering software or accountability software that Pastor Brad mentioned, you can get one of the best in the business covenant eyes and you can do that through my affiliate link at christianhomeandfamily.com forward slash ce well god bless you thank you for listening to the christian home and family podcast my prayer is that christ may evermore be the center of your home